0: Good morning. You made it. It's good to see you. Got the driveways clear. Those of you at home, we're glad you made it online as well. If you've got a Bible, go to Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today, Mark chapter 2. Are we awake? Yes? All right, fantastic. So if you have kids, I'm curious, uh, can you recall the first time, if you have multiple kids, can you recall the first time you left the oldest in charge of the younger ones when you went away? You remember that moment? There was probably some sense of like, just please don't turn this into like the 1971 Stanford prison experiment. (laughs) This is a famous experiment if you you don't know it. It's, uh, you know, it was an experiment in human nature and there's lots of criticism about how it was performed. But, But the idea was that some of the students, these are just regular students that just signed up for a psychology experiment. They were, some were assigned to be guards, and some were assigned to be prisoners, and they had to shut the, shut the experiment down because within a week, those who had, were assigned to be guards were abusing, like physically abusing their fellow students. Are you familiar with this experiment? I mean, it's, it's kinda crazy what just even a modicum of authority will do to us. I can remember leaving our oldest in charge and just please don't try to make your younger siblings do all your chores. You know, please just look out for them. Don't turn this into like a, oh, yes, good, I'm in charge, the way I've always wanted to be. And you firstborns, boy, do you like to be in charge of things. So we're thinking about today authority and how we, you know, we often, when we get it, misuse it. We, uh, you know, we maybe turn it into something it's not supposed to be. And what we're going to find in the text we're going to look at today is how God uses his authority Uh, not to manipulate or maneuver, um, but through his son, how he offers it to forgive, that he loves to use his authority to bring forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is gonna teach us today. Now, just to reorient us a little bit, and and maybe you're, you're brand new with us, it's your first time or first couple times Through Advent, we started a a series, we're calling the fullness of time because of what Galatians chapter four says, that God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. In other words, just the right time to bring salvation to the world. And in thinking about, at Advent, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, we were just examining through the story of God sending his son into the world, the heart of God, just trying to say, God, what do you show us about your heart in the specific details of the way that you sent your son into the world? Not just that you sent him, but how you sent him. Uh, the manner in which you sent him, and and how the narrative of the story helps us really enter into that. And now, turning the page into the new year, between now and Easter, what we're going to do is we're just going to continue that series in the fullness of time, but instead of just examining the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, we're going to examine the works of Jesus, and we're going to use the Gospel of Mark to do that. So we're not going to do a full-fledged study of the Gospel of Mark, but what we are going to do is examine some of the key works in the gospel of Mark that teach us about the heart of God through Jesus and the works that he did. And then when we get to Easter, we're gonna spend uh, a a good six weeks on the days of Holy Week leading up to the cross. So we'll spend one Sunday thinking about the the Sunday of Palm Sunday and then the Monday and then the Tuesday and then the Wednesday. And we'll go forward that way up through Easter. So just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, does that help if you you like to? I like to kind of always have a roadmap of where I'm headed. Uh, So hopefully that helps you as well. Now I said it's not a full-fledged study of the Gospel of Mark, but as we come to Mark chapter 2 and look at these different works, because we're not just going to work systematically through the book, which is our normal regular habit, I need to give you a little context in the Gospel of Mark, so stick with me on this. Let me kind of share with you uh, just a very, very high level, like 30,000 foot kind of overview of Mark, I'm just, let me give you the beginning and the end. So in Mark chapter one, uh, before we get to Mark chapter two, which is our text today, what we're gonna find is that Mark's gonna introduce his gospel with the most important title for Jesus, and I'll read it to you. Mark begins not with the birth of Jesus, he begins really with the ministry of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, but he begins his gospel this way in verse one of chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, to you and I, if you've been in church a while, maybe if you even haven't been in church, Probably somewhat familiar, at least just societally, with calling Jesus the Son of God. That's a kind of a typical title. I find that you, you may even watch movies where Jesus gets referred to as God's son by people who probably don't even believe that he's God's son, you know, maybe as a punchline of a joke or something like that. But but that reference is not unfamiliar to us. But recognize that when Mark is saying that, he's making this huge claim. He is declaring that this human being who lived and walked on the earth and then was crucified and then he's gonna say rose from the dead and now has gone into heaven to be with God, that he was God's very son. That is an offensive thing to say to people, uh, that they, to say God has a son is a confusing and a, a unique thing in the society of the day. So I wanna just make sure we don't just read past that. Mark begins his gospel that way because what he's saying is through Jesus, God unveils everything he wants us to know about himself. By calling Jesus his own son, he's saying he is my representative, the one who shows what I'm like. It's a little bit of the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A son is like his father. And so he says, this is my son. That's how Mark begins his gospel. And then he's going to specifically, Mark is going to spend way less time talking about the things Jesus said. He's going to do some of that, but a lot of time talking about the things Jesus did. That's why we're using Mark to think about his works, Mark loves a good action story. So if you're an action movie guy or gal, this is your gospel. I mean, he is succinct when it comes to the words of Jesus, and then he is elaborate when it comes to the works of Jesus. He is all about spending time unpacking and helping us think about, man, Jesus did all these things. He is a big fan of going, and immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. He just moves from story to story to story, because it is, it's an action-packed gospel. It's only 16 chapters, much shorter than uh, Matthew, than Luke, much shorter than John. This is the shortest. I, it's the oldest gospel. It's the first one that was written, most scholars believe, and the others are kind of based <laughs> off of it. So I, I'll just let you in on a little bit. This is my favorite gospel, uh, because it is so action-packed with the works of Jesus, and they're unveiling God to us, Now, the last thing I need you to see about the context of of the book of Mark is that at the end, it really ends in an unresolved kind of a way. Like the other gospels kind of tie up in a nice, uh, neat, tidy sort of uh, ending, and Mark ends in such a way that is so kind of disjointed, you're just left going, well, what's going to happen next? And that's exactly Mark's point. He means for you, he doesn't want to wrap up the story of the life of Jesus for you in this kind of nice, neat, tidy way, because he wants you to insert yourself in the story and say, what will I do with this? How am I going to react? You're watching again and again, the, close, the people close to Jesus, they, they mess up again and again in this gospel. This is the gospel for you if you mess up a lot. Because, in <laughs> some of you, like three of you, okay, awesome. Because again and again, the disciples, they mess up. And part of the message of this gospel is you, Jesus expects you to mess up. And he still loves you and he's still gonna use you and he's still redeeming you and he's still sanctifying you. He hasn't forsaken you and he, he's not displeased with you. Now, he doesn't love disobedience, fair enough doesn't love disobey. He doesn't want you to disobey, but he's also so full of mercy. And so every time you see the disciples fail or not get it or fail to understand, you are meant to go, that's kind of how I would be if I were right there. Please don't say I would have done so much better. Probably not true. And so again and again, this discipleship failures, this major theme in Mark, there's all this action, the power of Jesus, the works of Jesus revealing God, and then it ends in this way that is unresolved so that you will have to say, how will I respond to the message that Mark is bringing me? I have to put myself in the story, which is, as we've said throughout, uh, throughout Advent, one of the values of narrative, that we're not just reading a letter. Like, God didn't just give us a letter that Paul or Peter wrote saying, here's what you need to know about Jesus and just like a bullet point list, right? Here's all the things you need to know about Jesus. Jesus is God's son, he's the Messiah, he died for your sins, he uh, rose from the dead. He doesn't just give us a bullet point list, he tells us the story so that we would enter into the story. And so that's what we're gonna attempt to do as we go through the gospel more. All right, everybody with me, fair enough? All right, fantastic. So look at Mark chapter 2 we We're going gonna look at one of my favorite stories in, one of my, in my favorite gospel, uh, the story of the paralytic being healed, being lowered through the roof. How many of you are familiar with this story? Just kind of show of hands. Okay, awesome. If you're not, no worries. You're in the right place. We'll catch you up, okay? So here's Mark chapter two, beginning in verse one. Here's the words that we find. And when he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So here's what I want to do, I want to walk through the story, then I want to give you a couple of implications. So again, by way of entering into the story, let's see if we can't use a little bit of our creative imagination, some of our creative juices, and just picture ourselves in the story. I mean, picture yourself being the paralytic, being lowered in. Picture yourself being one of the friends. Maybe even put yourself in Jesus' shoes and think, what am I thinking as this one is being lowered down? But let's walk through the story, because in the details of it, we find some of the beauty of it. So go back to verse one. And as I said, Mark begins his gospel by calling Jesus the Son of God. That's the most important title for Jesus in the gospels. And he's proving that again through this story. Now, go back to verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum, so most of Jesus' early ministry is taking place in the northern regions of Israel, in the area of Galilee. That's his home base. And he, uh, Mark in particular, divides his gospel into the works Jesus did. The whole beginning part takes place in the northern parts of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee. He's kind of just jumping from area to area around there, and then eventually the second part of his gospel goes Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, and then the final part of his gospel is Jesus in Jerusalem. It's very clearly divided into those three sections. So this is all the stuff that he's doing, way up, kind of away from the center of the religion of the day. I mean, away from the religious elite, away from the temple. He's all doing, he's kind of doing it out in the backwoods, if you will, a little bit. So he returned to Capernaum. After some days, it was reported that he was at home. So he's returning. Now, here's an important fact for you. We don't know this for sure, but the most likely place that is home for him in Capernaum is Peter and Andrew's house. Now, if you remember his disciples, Peter and Andrew, they're brothers. James and John are also brothers. And in chapter 1, we are told that they are at he is at Peter and Andrew's house. That's kind of a home base for him. So we don't know for sure, but it's very possible this is Peter's house where this takes place. Now just think about that for a moment if you're Peter. All right. So you can see where I'm going with that. Now this is what, he's in Capernaum after some days reported that he was at home. Now verse two, we find this. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room. So Already, through what Jesus has done in chapter one, he's healed some people, he's taught a bit, and in that alone, here at the very early parts of his ministry, already a crowd is beginning to gather. People are drawn to wherever he is. So much so, that there is no more room, not even at the door. So that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now don't go past that little part of verse two there, where he says, and he was preaching the word to them. This is the regular habit of Jesus, so again, Here's Mark, he's gonna focus on the action, and he's just gonna give one little phrase to, and he was preaching the word to them. But in the Gospel of Mark, again and again, anytime time Jesus is doing a healing or a miraculous work, there's always a teaching element that is paired with it. He always talks, and Jesus was teaching. He was communicating the word to them, and then this miracle happens, and he spends more time with it. And the reason he's marrying those two things together is because he wants you to see this. He marries the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, because in the works, we look at it and we go, wow, he made a man who was paralyzed stand up and walk. It's amazing, yes? And what he's saying by pairing his words with his works is his words are no less miraculous than his works. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of Jesus is miraculous, supernatural, divine, directly from him. So don't read his words, let's say in some of the other gospels, and go, oh, that seems like a nice teaching. No, no, no. Those words have divine authority in the same way that being able to heal someone or raise them from the dead shows divine authority. His words and his works are always right there together. Does that make sense? Yeah, so don't miss that. That's a little nuance that Mark is giving us there. And then let's move on now to verse three. So verse three and four now He's setting up the tension in the story. So this is the rising action, if you ever follow narrative arc, right? We're in the rising action. He set the scene in the first couple of verses. Now here comes the rising action. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. All right, so we've already set up the problem. The house is packed. Now here come these four men who are, must be friends of this man who's paralyzed and can't walk. And they bring him. And it says in verse four, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. All right, that phrase, remove the roof, literally is they unroofed the roof, which I love. They just made the roof, not a roof, basically. All right? And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right, so here's what's happening. The narrative moves forward. We see the challenge created by the crowd and then the actions that these men take in order to get their friend to Jesus. It's a beautiful expression of friendship, isn't it? I mean, they are not worried about social etiquette. They are not worried about damage caused to somebody else's property. They are not worried about anything other than I've got to get my friend to Jesus because he can do what no one else can do. Now, you might guess that there's gonna be a point of application there for us in just a bit. But here's what I want you to see. Before we even get into the beauty, the beautiful expression of these four friends, there's a theme that Mark is gonna have throughout his gospel that's being mentioned for the first time here, the crowd. Anytime you see that phrase, the crowd, and John uses it too. If you Remember when we studied John, we saw that there's There's the religious opponents, the Jewish religious opponents. There's the crowd who are kind of on the periphery of Jesus. They're fascinated by him until he says something hard that requires commitment. And then they go away. And then there's the disciples. So for John, it's the opponents, the crowd, and the disciples. And for Mark, it's very similar. The crowd serves a purpose. Two purposes, really, in the Gospel of Mark. The crowd is fascinated by Jesus. It shows something of his uniqueness that when he starts doing something, even right here, when he hasn't done much yet, at the very beginning of his ministry, people are still flocking to him because he's unique. I mean, we don't encounter that very much, but that's exactly what Mark is showing us. He's so fascinating, he's so unique, that people are just drawn to where he is. Do you see that? But then the next thing, Is that again and again throughout the gospel, what we're going to find is the crowd is always keeping people from Jesus, never actually bringing them to him. The crowd is an obstacle, not an aid. And so whenever we see the crowd, one of the things that we're supposed to learn is that proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. Being enamored with Jesus and the things he can do is not the same as faith in Jesus. Faith requires action, commitment. It requires response. And again and again, the crowd gets in the way, just like they're in the way here. Do you see that? The crowd doesn't go, there's a man in need of healing. Let's get out of the way. They create an obstacle in the way of getting to Jesus. And again, we're gonna find an application point there for us that you can probably already begin to feel in your heart as you think about the crowd. It's an important thing at a large church to think about what does a crowd do? What does a crowd do? And we never aim for the crowd. Never aim to gather a crowd. Got to go deeper than that. You got to aim beyond that. Got to aim at something that is discipleship, that is ownership of Jesus, that calls to action and that gives all of ourselves to him. So, So that's the first introduction to this theme that again, as we go through Mark, we'll see again and again. Now, By comparison, these friends, the crowd is in the way. The friends are not in the way, right? The friends are going to do whatever it takes. Now, just to give you a sense of the the, the roofs of the day would have been flat roofs. They would have been large pieces of timber, so trunks of trees overlaid with thatch, and then that thatch overlaid with hardened mud. So when it says that they were making a hole in the roof, they were literally digging out the roof. This would have been the place, they would have gone upstairs to create a cool part of the day. You know, the roof was the place you went usually to get cool because inside, it's kind of a 15 by 15 foot room quite often. You know, if you're, if you're building your roof with only what you can get out of a, the trunk of a tree, it can't be that big of a room, right? And so it's not, it's a somewhat confined space. You get a lot of people packed into it. It's a hot part of the world. You can imagine the roof serves as a place to go pray. It serves as a place to go and get the cool of the night. You'd sleep on the roof. Somewhat, kids, do not go sleep on your roof tonight. There would be these flat roofs. So these men, they, they make their, there would be a staircase leading up to it. It would have been hard to get up onto the roof, but to get through the roof is another story. And so these men, they start digging. I just want you to picture that for a moment. What made them make this decision? They go up on the roof and they, we've got to get our friend to Jesus. What is going to happen the second they start digging through that roof? I mean, Jesus and however many people, let's say it's 75, 100 people, are trying to pack into this space, dirt is going to start falling all over the place. Then they're going to have to remove that, and they're going to have to maybe perhaps untie some timbers and move them aside. Peter and Andrew have got to be thinking, are you serious right now? Like, I'm going to have to fix that. That's going to be on the honeydew list. <laughs> they're unroofing the roof but all of that is meant to show us their commitment to getting their friend to Jesus. I mean, they know, not just that this one's unique, but his uniqueness causes them to take action that is abnormal. This is not normal action. I mean, I have to think, did you try to tap people on the shoulder and say, could you move, could you move, could you move? I don't know. We're just told they go up on the roof and they start digging a hole. I'm just, think about the riskiness of that. As you get lowered into that, you're the paralytic now. You're the man or the woman who cannot walk. You are desperately in need of the touch of Jesus, of the power of Jesus. He's the only one that can do for you. And yet, do you find yourself thinking, like, what is about, you're going to lower me down into a room full of people, and am I about to get rebuked for what we just did? Is someone going to say, that was really not cool? Right? I mean, look, listen, some of us don't want to show up five minutes early to a party because we're worried that we're inconveniencing the host. These guys are taking his roof off to get to where Jesus is. They are desperate to get their friend. And it is worth noting. There are numerous times in the gospel when we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus and that's right, that's accurate. All of us have to respond in faith to Jesus. We have to make a decision and a choice. But again and again, there's this way that the faith of others gets, in a sense, imparted to or benefits others. Because did you see when I read through it the first time that it said, and when Jesus saw what, whose faith? Not the paralytic's faith, when he saw their faith he sees the friend's faith. and I'm gonna believe the paralytic's faith is wrapped up in that. He's willing to be lowered, right? In a moment, he's gonna say, take up your mat, walk. He's gonna get up. So there's certainly faith on his part. But there's this beautiful expression of Jesus saying, your friend's faith has mattered in your life. Your friend's faith is part of what has brought you to the place where I'm now going to do in a miraculous work of healing for you. Man, don't you want to be that kind of friend? Don't you want to be the kind of friend who goes, I just want to get my friends to Jesus. Those who don't believe in him, I I want to get them to him. Those who do believe, I want to keep getting them to him again and again. I just want to get them to Jesus, whatever it takes. I'll take off the roof. I'll go wherever. I'll do whatever. So, Let's go to verse five because now we come to like a really seminal moment in the story. Are you tracking with the story? Everybody good? All right, let's keep tracking. In verse five now, this is perhaps, I mean, verse 10 is the thematic statement of the whole story. I mean, it's the, it's kind of the, this is what the story's all about. But verse five is a really crucial moment, okay? So verse five, he says this And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. All right, so so pause. Before we even go to what happens next, here's what you need to see. This is an interesting decision by Jesus. One of two things has to be happening. I don't know that we can say definitively. Scholars are divided over over which of two things is happening. I'll tell you my opinion, but either are, I think, faithful biblical interpretation, okay? So either, option one, Jesus chooses to kind of pick a fight here because he could just heal the man, and if he heals him, he'd heal others. Everyone would speak well of him, right? Everyone would go, wow, that's awesome. I mean, no one, would, no one would rebuke him, no one would say anything bad about him for just making a man who couldn't walk, walk. Everyone would see that as good. But Jesus chooses to say, address the man's sins. Now, if when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, if he's talking just about the fact that generally, all of our ailments, all of our maladies... Every sickness, every infirmity is the result of the fact that there is sin in the world. We live in a fallen world. That's why, sin, that's why sickness exists in the world. And some scholars say that's what Jesus is talking about. He, he's saying, look, you, you, you can't walk, and, and to, that's due to the fact that there's sin in the world. But if that's the case, then do you see that he's picking a fight here? He knows the scribes are there. He knows the reaction that this statement will get, but he does it anyway, he does it as a way of saying, I, I need to make a point right now. I'm going to choose through this situation to make a bigger point. The other option is that this man's paralysis is the result of some sin in his life. And Jesus is dealing with the deeper issue. He can't just heal the man physically. He wants to heal him at the deepest place from the deepest problem. Now, let's, let's back up for a moment because we need a theology of sin and sickness and the Bible is so balanced on this, Old Testament and new. It's really good. And look, I could do a whole Sunday on this, but here's what I wanna tell you. The Bible both corrects the idea. The Bible certainly teaches us that all sickness is in the world because sin is in the world, because, fall, because we live in a fallen world. That's kind of bedrock, ground, zero. Make sense? But then it's really balanced in helping us understand that quite often then, that, that's where our sickness comes from. But there are numerous moments in the scriptures Where someone's illness, someone's sickness, both under the old covenant and the new, is the result of their own sinful decisions. They've done something, and there's a reason why. A result of that is that there's a sickness or an ailment or a malady that comes to them as a result. Jesus also then, at numerous points in the New Testament, corrects the idea that all of our sickness are the result directly of our sin. So he doesn't let us just go, well, every time I'm sick, I did something wrong. But he also doesn't let anybody off with just a, that's always the case. In 1 Corinthians, we hear that some are sick and and have even died because they've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So there are times where the result of our sin can be a, a result in the physical world. So there's this very balanced view scripturally, and you can go spend more time on that about how we think about sin and sickness and the relationship between the two. And listen, in a pre-modern society, it was just always assumed that whatever I was dealing with in the physical realm was the result of something in the spiritual realm. Oh, I mean, it was just a given. That's why you see those Bible stories where they're like, well, who sinned? Somebody had to sin for this physical ailment to be here. And Jesus corrects that and says, no, no, that's not the case. But in a modern society, we just Deny that there's any connection between the spiritual and the physical. We act as if there's no connection between the two. And the Bible presents a very different view than that. A balanced view. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so listen. So here's my, here's my thought. Up to this point in the gospel, it's still early, and there are points where Jesus kind of picks a fight with his words or with his actions. He does something on purpose that he knows is gonna provoke because he's making the point, I am the son of God. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I don't think that's happening here yet. It's too early in the story. It's too early in the game, if you will. I think it's probably likely, and Jesus has not done anything up to this point, to draw attention or to create conflict on purpose. And so again, I think either option is a valid option. I tend to think that here in this story, this man's sickness, his paralysis, is in some way due to something in his spiritual life, something due to his own. Maybe he did something in it directly led to an injury that then directly led to his paralysis. I don't know for sure, okay? So fair enough, but you can wrestle with that, okay? Now, if that's the case, then Jesus isn't picking a fight here. He's being full of compassion because he sees this man get lowered in front of him. And he goes, I can do one of two things. I can deal with this man's physical issue and I can send him away. And no one will think less of me and I won't be picking up. It won't create any difficulty or tension. I can just take it easy. Or I can recognize that just like all of us, there's a deeper wound than what this physical wound is right in front of me. There's a deeper problem. This man has a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. And I'm going to deal with that because I'm so full of love with the man I'm looking at here. This Illness, and just imagine being this man, and let's, if I'm I'm right, then he's very aware probably that something in his past led to this physical situation so that every day his paralysis is a reminder of his failings in the past. Every day. He has this physical limitation that is the result of something in his past, and he knows it, and every day it's on display for everybody to see. And then Jesus goes, Let me deal with what's really wrong. Let me not just deal with the symptom. Let me deal with the illness. Let me deal with the deeper sickness. Your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be lowered into that room and then for Jesus to look at you full of compassion and say to you, I forgive you. You are forgiven. For those to be his first words, massively massively powerful. All right, so let's keep going then into verse six, seven, and eight, because again, we see Jesus not afraid of a conflict, not afraid to show compassion at great cost. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, these are religious leaders, religious elites, questioning in their hearts. So they're not saying it out loud. It's in here, okay? So we get another hint of the divine authority of Jesus. He knows their thoughts. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. In other words, he's saying something untrue about God. Raising himself to the level. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, I want you to catch here that they're not wrong. At least not when they say, Only God can forgive sins. Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely accurate, but they don't see who Jesus is. Only God can forgive sins. Now, listen, perhaps Jesus could have dealt with the tension like so many of us do who are conflict avoiders. He could have said, your sins are forgiven. Known what was in their hearts. Yeah, yeah, I know what they're asking, but I'm just gonna go ahead and make my way out and not say anything. We'll just leave it, we'll just leave it there. We'll just kinda let it go, undealt with. But instead, he goes right at them, knows their thoughts, and says, why are you thinking this way? Do you see he's now not afraid? I'm going right, right to, in the same way I'm gonna deal with the heart of the issue, for this man in front of me who can't walk, I'm gonna come right to the heart of your issue, scribes. I'm gonna say to you, why are you questioning in your heart? what you just heard. Now, he's gonna go on from there. Verse nine, and now we come to kind of the, the climax, right? So verse nine, 10, 11, 12. Which is easier to say that to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now listen, what Jesus is doing, it's a, if, you, if you care about you know, sort of uh, logical argumentation, he's, uh, he's bringing forward what's called an a fortiori argument, all right, it's the Latin, it just means you're arguing. If I can do the harder thing, then I can definitely do the lesser thing, right? My argument for this thing that I'm asserting is based upon uh, an even stronger, more powerful argument. And so, of course, it is harder to forgive sins than it is to raise, cause someone to walk. We agree with that? Like, to forgive sins is the prerogative of God alone, but He doesn't say which is harder to forgive sins. He says which is harder, or which is easier. Is it harder to say, your sins are forgiven, to say your sins are forgiven, or is it harder to say, rise, walk? Well, one of those things is harder because you have to prove it right then and there. If you say your sins are forgiven, there's no evidence, you can't present any evidence yet. You could just say, I say it and it's, yes, it's done. And Jesus is saying, if I can make this man walk, then you should also believe that I have the authority to do what I just said I could do, which is to forgive his sins. And so verse 10, come to that now. And here's the, this is the argument of the whole text wrapped up into one verse. We find these words, but that you may know that the son of man, that's a second title for Jesus that's going to occur again and again. Uh, If I had time, I would walk you through that It's a beautiful biblical term from Daniel chapter seven. But again, it's, it's a claim of divine authority, essentially is what it is. It's saying, I'm the perfect man that God has said would come. So marry that with son of God, son of man. He's saying, I am perfect man. I am son of God. I am divine. Both those things come together. But you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns his attention. He said to the paralytic. And I love that because he doesn't just keep his attention on the scribes. He turns it where it needs to be. Yes, do you see that? He's not over here going, I'm dealing with you over here, but let me just do it over here. You know, let me just say to you over here, I'm gonna teach you that I can forgive sins. Rise and walk. No, he turns his attention. text is very precise about this. He goes away from them and turns to the man in need of help and puts his eyes on him again. Because that's how much he cares. He's not gonna be distracted. And he turns and he says, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic, And then he says this, rise, take up your bed and walk. Or I guess first is your sins are forgiven. He repeats it. Oh no, I'm sorry. I lost my spot. Verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home and he rose and immediately picked up his bed. So there's that call to action that true faith always requires. He immediately replies, immediately takes action in response to what Jesus says, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course, Jesus had healed some other people in chapter one, so they had seen something like that before, but what they hadn't seen before was the claim to forgive sins. And then it backed up by a miraculous work. That's what's new. So friends, as we look at the story now, I want you to see this beautiful story where Jesus is essentially saying, I use my divine authority to bring forgiveness of sins. You see that in the story, yes? It's really about his authority and how he uses it. Not so much just about the healing, but what that points to. So let's draw a couple of implications. If this whole story is designed to help us see Jesus and therefore the heart of God through Jesus, that he loves to use his divine authority to bring and to give forgiveness. Unlike how we use authority sometimes to get what we want or what we need or exercise you know, to, to control a situation that we wanna control. God, through his son Jesus, delights to use his authority to forgive. So let's draw some implications from that, shall we? That, that's our text, that's our story. I just wanna point you to a couple. And I... I alluded to them as we were going. Very simple, straightforward. Number one, we've gotta get our friends to Jesus because only he can give them what they need. We've got to get our friends to Jesus. Now, part of the beauty of this story, I think, as I reflect upon it, is that I'm always mindful that for my friends who do not know the Lord, their salvation is not based upon my words, my argumentation, my ability to I don't know, paint a good picture of Jesus. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit of God, which means that if they're, gonna, if they're gonna respond to Jesus, if they're gonna be healed, if their sins are going to be forgiven, I've got to get them to Jesus in prayer before I do anything else. My first instinct, when I want my friends to know Jesus, it should be to share the gospel with them. It should be to talk with them about spiritual matters. It should be to engage them in those conversations, in love and, and patience and listening. and what are your objections? What are your hang-ups? What are you struggling with? Talk to me about it, and to be understanding and compassionate and patient, all those things. But before I do any of that, what's the first thing I have to do? I have to take them to the feet of Jesus in prayer. I have to dig through the roof in prayer and say, I just want to get them to you because you're the only one. You're the only one that can do anything to, to bring the forgiveness that they need. You're the only one. There's nobody else. Certainly not me. Certainly not my uh, love or, or any kind of winsomeness or argumentation or logical capability. I have to get them to you, which should make me much more desperate in prayer. I wonder if we just pictured ourselves praying for our, our family members and friends that we love that, that have not experienced the forgiveness of God. I wonder if we just pictured ourselves digging through the roof, if that might help us. Every time I get on my knees and say, Lord, save them, bring them to Jesus. If I just pictured myself, this is just one more, one more scoop of dirt in my hands and I'm just tearing away the roof. I'm guessing these guys didn't have tools. They didn't come ready to tear the roof off. I'm guessing they had to do this with their own bare hands. But they were desperate to get their friends to Jesus. Just as an application of that, I, I, you've probably seen in the What's Happening emails, January 25th and, and 26th, we're gonna do uh, a prayer initiative. We're gonna do 24 hours straight of prayer, just praying for our community, uh, praying for those who don't know Jesus, asking, and, asking the Lord to move through his spirit to bring salvation. And I'll just remind you of that, encourage you that, you can go on the website and sign up for a slot and just say, I'm committing to pray. Please, if, if we have more than one person at each slot, that's great. Okay, we'd love to see as many of you praying with us. It's just, it's just a good rhythm. It's just a, a way for us to get into a rhythm of prayer. So that's coming up January 25th and 26th. We're gonna, we're gonna tear the roof down. We're gonna unroof the roof, if you will, in prayer. That's the first thing. We've got to get our friends to Jesus. And by the way, not just for those who, who need to experience forgiveness through Christ for the, because they, they've not come to him, but also for one another, That we would keep asking for forgiveness, keep seeking forgiveness, that we would receive forgiveness again and again when we, you know, I mean, one of the things we have to pray into one another's lives, get each other to Jesus so that we would walk in forgiveness. That we take ownership, hold of the forgiveness that's offered to us in Christ. We'll come to that a little bit more in a moment, but the second application that I just wanted to point out is. Uh, not just that we have to get our friends to Jesus, but that we also cannot let the crowd keep us from Jesus. And I, in particular, I have those of you in mind who do not know Christ, haven't made a claim to know him. And again, I always say this, you probably get tired of hearing it, but you're in the right place. I mean, we want you to come and ask questions and, and journey along. I mean, you are so in the right place. Um, we hope that we engage your questions and, and skepticism and doubt and whatever, bad experiences in the past. We hope we engage that. We want to engage with humility and patience, but also with, with truth. I mean, we're, we're, we are not shy about Jesus here. We're not gonna be shy. Presumably you would know that. <laughs> uh, but I have you in mind as I think about this because this crowd stands in the way. And, and I recognize that in a larger church, it's very easy to kind of sit in the crowd and just remain there. And I don't want the, the number of people that come to this church to ever get in the way of you engaging with Jesus personally. I, I just want to beg you, come out of the crowd. Like again and again in Mark, what you're going to see is that the people who come to Saving Faith are the people who just engage directly with Jesus. He gets them kind of one-on-one, and he just, he just like pulls them right in. They're just drawn in. So I... I just wanna encourage you to take the next step out of the crowd. And again, not a forced thing, right? But I also don't want you to believe that just showing up here on a Sunday and and hearing us talk about Jesus is the same as taking action related to Jesus. Saying, yeah, what he did, what he said, he is God. His payment for my sins, I I need to take it. I I need to take it as mine. We want you to do that. And so as you sense that, now, because I find we're not great as a society, as Western people, uh, thinking about matters of spiritual, not spiritual matters, I, I think we kind of can, I mean, we're really good at, at diagnosing the physical and all these kinds of things, but we're not great spiritual. So if you have not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder if it would help you, just real quickly. Sometimes I know I talk about like, hey, if the spirit is moving, if you sense that, don't resist it. And, and I wonder if you may not recognize it. If it's happening. So quite often, here's what I want to say to you. Quite often, when the Spirit is bringing you to Jesus, it is not immediately an experience of freedom. That comes later. The first experience is often feeling like a weight is pressing down on you. That's often the first. Now, let, and I want to explain why. Because in order to know you need the forgiveness, Jesus offers first you have to know that you're a sinner. First you have to believe that you are you are guilty and in rebellion against him. And so often what the spirit does first is I wouldn't want you to get the impression that, okay, I'm thinking about Jesus and all of a sudden I'm gonna feel this like, lightness and this freedom just in thinking about him. That's probably not gonna happen. What's gonna happen first most likely is you are gonna feel a weight and it's gonna press on you. But my encouragement to you is then turn to him, Right? You don't have to stay under that weight. Acknowledge it. And here's the other, the other thing is, while you feel that weight, quite often, in, this is what will happen in your spirit. At the same time you're feeling that, the spirit's not just going to leave you there. He doesn't just leave you in the feeling of that weight. There's also this way in which you're being carried, like the paralytic, to Jesus. It's kind of like you're going, oh my God. Gosh, I'm starting to see stuff that I never saw before for the first time. My eyes are being opened to what it means to be guilty against a holy and righteous God. And that's weighty and painful. But at the same time, it's almost like you feel like you're on one of those walkways at the airport. And it's just, you're like, why am I moving? I don't know what's happening right now. Why am I moving this way? Somehow you got on it you didn't know you were on it. I I always compare (laughs) One of the greatest illustrations in my life was when I married Amanda. We only dated for five months and then we were engaged for five months and then we were married, okay? We hadn't even known each other a year when we got married. And there was something, I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, we had our boxes and we were ticking them on the list. Yes, this person loves Jesus and yes, we could serve faithfully together uh, and, you know, all these kinds of things. So that was there. But I would tell you that the experience of meeting and getting to the place of knowing I wanted to marry Amanda was very much like being carried. It was like, I I didn't know what was happening or why it was happening so quickly, and she knew she was going to marry me before I knew I was going to marry her. So both of us, it was just, and it was the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God just carrying us along in a way that wasn't against our will, but was also in a way that was supernatural and was not just Me going, I'm going to make a decision, then I'm going to make the next decision, then I'm going to make the next decision. I remember calling my dad, and I had been on a date with her, and he said, how did did it go? I said, "It it was really good. I think I'm going to start shopping for a ring, and I couldn't believe the words came out of my mouth. I just remember being like, what did I just say? And then I was shopping for a ring, and I was learning about the four C's of diamonds and all this stuff I never wanted to know. And. And then I was talking to my father, future father-in-law about, and I was like, well, I asked him now, I, there's no going back now, you know? It was just like being carried along, and quite often when you're brought to Jesus, kind of what it feels like. Does that help a little bit? And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe just to remember that, you're just carried along, and you felt that weight, and I want you to know that, because I want you to, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know what to expect. So that's a, that's a bit of a pretty common experience in coming to salvation. All right, let's do the last bit. Um, last application. You're gonna say, oh, wow. Last application is ask for forgiveness. Not just to come to salvation, but believer, follow Jesus, ask for forgiveness from God and from others. Would you just make it your habit? Look, it is hard to do, It's embarrassing to admit you're wrong, especially when no one would know if you didn't say anything. It's hard to ask for forgiveness. But there's freedom. And it should be the regular habit of your life to be asking for forgiveness. I mean, just take account right now. When is the last time you had to say, when is the last time you asked God to forgive you of something? And when is the last time you asked somebody else To forgive you for something. If it's been a while, could I suggest it's not because you haven't sinned in a while? I mean, forgive me if I'm being a little intrusive there. But, you know, listen, it's probably not because of that. So, I need you to be pierced by how powerful it is that God possesses all authority. All of it, every shred of it, every, every modicum of it. He has it all, and he chooses to use it to offer forgiveness. You see how amazing that is? Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Why? Because He carries the work Jesus does and offers forgiveness to you. Be astounded by that. Be astounded by it every day that the forgiveness of God is available to you in Jesus. Remember that you cannot be free of shame unless you ask for forgiveness. Here's what I mean by that without going too deep into this. There, I mean, um, being free from shame, is, it seems like a theme in our society, and, and there's usually two remedies that are given for shame. There's this like, feeling of shame that we feel. It's kind of intrinsic, and people want to not feel that way, obviously. Uh, and so there's two things people tend to, tend to do. They either move the goalposts of what should cause shame and convince themselves it, it shouldn't. Oh, this thing that I feel shame about, I'll just say it wasn't wrong. I'll just move the goalposts. And, or the other option is to tell ourselves we had a justified reason for doing the thing that caused shame. The people around me, the society around me, the systems, the structures, the, the genetics, the whatever. We have these reasons that we just pit. We, we tend to blame some other reason instead of just saying the thing I did was shameful. And can I tell you that those two things, they just aren't going to work? You can try them. I, By all means, feel free. I say by all means, I wish you wouldn't. Uh, They don't work because the thing that that caused the shame is still in there causing it. And do you see that when God says, I use my divine authority, Jesus says, I use my divine authority to offer you forgiveness, what he's saying is the remedy for shame. I will forgive you so much so that the thing causing the shame is gone. It's not there anymore. The only remedy for shame is to remove the cause of shame. Does that make sense? Just to remove it, you gotta, it's got to be removed. Like surgically, it's like the tumor. You can't just go, I'll just pretend it's not there. You have to take it out. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. so He can deal with shame. Failing to ask for forgiveness freezes your spiritual growth. Follower of Jesus, if you don't make a habit of asking for forgiveness when you need to ask for forgiveness, it will ossify you. It will harden you you will be frozen in your spiritual growth. It's just a pattern I've seen again and again and again. We ask for forgiveness the first time to, to be right with Jesus, and then somehow we lose sight of that and we get into these spiritual growth tracks that we're trying to grow in Jesus, but we stop asking for forgiveness. And when we do, just know you cannot grow spiritually without asking for forgiveness being a regular part of your life. Would you agree with that? You just gotta do it. It's hard, but you're gonna freeze your spiritual growth if you don't do it. If you wanna be like Jesus, you're going to have to do it. And then the last thing is um, asking for forgiveness will free you up from perfectionism. Like a performance-based spirituality, it frees you up. One of the reasons that some of you, some of us, don't ask for forgiveness is because we just have a really hard time admitting when we were wrong because we have this perfectionist tendency. Like, I don't, I don't want to admit that I am not perfect. And you see that's a workspace righteousness, right? But here's the danger of that is at first you do that, you know you did something wrong, but you can't admit it because of this perfectionistic tendency, but you feel the pain of it, and you just kind of eat that, and you deal with it, but you'd rather sit in that than have to admit. It's more painful to admit that you're wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about if you have a perfectionistic kind of bent? But here's the danger, can I tell you, that the longer you do that, what happens is, over time, instead of seeing it and it causing you pain but not admitting it, you stop seeing it. The danger of not asking forgiveness is that perfectionism, if you ask for it, you can get off the wheel, the hamster wheel of perfectionism, you can get off. If you don't ask for it, you stop seeing the stuff that you did that was wrong. And maybe that goes back to what I said before, and then I'm gonna pray and we're done. If that's you, like think about your family life for a moment. If others around you ask for forgiveness but you never see that you did anything that you need to ask for forgiveness, is it possible that you've become blind to it? Is it possible that you don't see your part in it anymore? Because for so long, you've, even if it wasn't for perfectionistic tendencies, although often it is, I think, is it possible that you're denying your need for forgiveness because you just don't see it anymore. If it's hard for you to see it, it's possible that it's because you haven't made a habit, a spiritual habit of going, when I'm wrong, I quickly go and say, I need to be forgiven. I was wrong. I mean, just you might need to go look in the mirror today and just practice these words. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? It's just those. How many of you, I'm, right now, my guess is, how many of you have an issue? Don't raise your hand or say anything, okay? How many, of you, how many of you have an issue in your family that is there because someone will not ask for forgiveness? How many of you have a strain or a strife or a, 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 a relationship that is tense or broken because someone will not simply say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? God is so good. He says, I use my divine authority and I send my son to show it to offer you forgiveness. Receive it, walk in it. It's yours. Be free. Praise God. Let's pray and then let's sing to conclude our time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way Jesus lived every single moment of his life, teaching us what you're like, showing us your power. How good is it that we are finite beings and you are infinite and there's no way we can know anything about you if you didn't choose to reveal it and you didn't just send us a letter to tell us what you're like. You sent us your son and every single moment, every breath he breathed, he was showing you to us. And we love you for that, and we love him for that. We pray that you would have your way with us. We wanna offer you our praise now as we think about the fact that we are a forgiven people because you are so powerful to forgive and willing to forgive. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand and conclude our time by singing together.